Hey everybody, and welcome to Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's podcast where we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's going on on campus and around the world. And today we're talking about hurricanes and water quality with Hans Pearl, the Keenan Professor of Marine and Environmental Sciences at the UNC Institute of Marine Sciences. Whenever a hurricane hits, we hear a lot about how the storm has impacted people with flooding and storm surges. But we don't usually talk about how the storm has affected the actual water. Your research has focused on water quality and how storms impact it. So let's start out today by talking about water quality and why is water quality so important? Well, water is one of the key resources we need to live. You know, we need to be able to drink it, use it in ways to uh, enhance our lifestyles, wash, shower, swim in it, recreational value of water. And let's not forget that uh, water has a lot of resources that we uh, value very much, including fisheries, aquaculture. Agriculture depends a lot on water, of course. And now, you know, agriculture depends on good water quality, particularly when you consider things like organic-grown crops and stuff like that. So there's multiple reasons why water quality is important and why it's important to uh, maintain good water quality, but probably even more important, understand changes in water quality so we can start doing something about improving it. So we're talking a lot about water quality here, but what actually constitutes good water and bad water? How do we classify them? Yeah, well, good water quality is water that you can use without uh, having to remove anything or uh, treat it. in in many ways to get rid of pollutants, for example. There are other issues with water quality that are really important that uh, you might not think are very important. They're sort of out of sight, out of mind issues. For example, algae blooms. You know, we all know that algae live in the water and some lakes and streams and estuaries are a little bit more greener than others and we usually don't worry about that very much. But we can get some bad players in there that can produce toxins, for example, that affect everything from the organisms that eat them to humans need to consume the water. That's not very obvious, you know, when you look at a system many times. So there needs to be a lot of good diagnostic capabilities for, for understanding what's usable, uh, acceptable, and fishable, and drinkable, and eatable. Water quality is probably uh, one of the most important resources we have. How does poor water quality impact people, and then how does it impact the ecosystem? Well, algae blooms affect people in various ways. Well, first of all, let's just define what a bloom is. A bloom is uh, excessive growth of algae in the water that usually turns the water uh, green or sometimes even red or yellow. So there's an aesthetic issue there. Uh, No one wants an algae bloom in front of their expensive home on the water, for example. And then we get into issues of ecosystem effects. If there's too much algae growing in the water, when those algae die and sink, they go to the bottom, and all that algal material consumes oxygen and can lead to uh, depletion of oxygen in the bottom waters. That can lead to things like fish kills, for example, or bad odors, hydrogen sulfide, for example, and uh, essentially making the water unusable for drinking water purposes, and even irrigation purposes in some places. And then lastly, the organisms that form the blooms can produce toxic substances. They don't mean to do that to kill people. Uh, Most of these toxic substances are metabolites that are produced by the algae for all sorts of reasons. They're their own competition with other algae and survival. It just happens that a lot of those metabolites can be toxic to people. And, uh, and domestic pets, for example, and even smaller animals that consume uh, the algae themselves, 
And that can lead to uh, chronic diseases such as liver disease, uh, neurological problems, and even death. So it's clearly very important that we're paying attention and keeping an eye on the water quality because it impacts people's health and the environment. And you've personally created a program that helps people monitor water and have a better idea of what's going on. So what is that program and how does it work? We're using vessels that are out there as ships of opportunity to actually collect water quality data for us. And that data can then be recorded and transmitted from the bridge of the ferries, in the case of the North Carolina ferry system, back to the lab and also shared with the management agencies. And the program that has been in place now in North Carolina since, well, actually since Hurricane Floyd (laughs) back in 1999 is called Ferrymon. It stands for Ferry Operated Monitoring Systems. It's an autonomous system. The ferries are just going back and forth, of course, on their routes. And below deck, we share the water that goes into the cooling system for the ferries. Part of that is shared by us. It goes through a couple of small tanks that have sensors in them. And those sensors are reporting all the time the water that's flowing through as the ferries are plying the waters of Pamlico Sound or the Noose or other systems. Ferrymont has been operational now for, um, well, almost 20 years. And it has told us a lot about what the water quality conditions are, for example, in Pamlico Sound, which is not routinely monitored by any other program because it's so big and it's a difficult place to work because of weather changes. The distances are huge. So the ferries are great. They're the first thing on the water, the last thing to go off the water if we have a hurricane. So they have been able to fill a lot of data gaps in terms of what the conditions are out there. And then also when we get an event, whether it be a spill, an algae bloom, for example, out in the system, or in the case of hurricanes, uh, the impacts of these large storm events that are now becoming much more frequent and some would argue more intense too. And we're, of course, at the doorstep of many of those storms that come and hit our coastal waters. So we have a system in place now using the ferries as essentially ships of opportunity to do this automated water quality. The other thing that the ferries system contains is a uh, carousel type of collector. So we measure the water quality conditions, and then just downstream from that tank that has the sensors in it is a uh, collection device. It looks like a big box that has bottles in it. Those bottles can then be filled with water at program times, and then a technician will come out to the ferries and collect those bottles for very specific measurements, including uh, toxins, for example, or contaminants, pathogenic bacteria uh, that the seafood folks would be interested in, and for anything else that anyone wants, because we can share that water with any other experts that have expertise, for example, in identifying industrial chemicals, uh, agricultural chemicals, things like that. So now that we know a little bit more about what water quality is and how it impacts people in the environment, how do hurricanes impact water quality? Well, their impact can be anything from very little to huge, and that has to do with how much rainfall a storm dumps onto the watershed and the runoff that we get from that event coming into the system. In the case of Floyd, for example, which was really the kind of the first big hurricane that we uh, did a lot of water quality monitoring on, and that occurred in September of 1999. And many listeners probably remember that it flooded most of the eastern part of North Carolina and towns and cities were isolated for up to six weeks. But Ferrymon was out there, you know, collecting data 
all the time. And what we found with Floyd, for example, was that the salinity changes that occurred in the Pamlico Sound rapidly uh, made the habitat for certain fish species and shellfish species like crabs, for example, uninhabitable. Uh, that information was very useful in terms of, you know, having the state fisheries management folks understand why there shouldn't be fishing going on in some of those places because what was left there was very important in terms of providing larvae for the next seasons, for example, for settlement. And also there were issues with fish disease from the rapid changes in salinity and also pollutants that came into the system. And so there were uh, quite significant increases in things like sores on fish, fish diseases that... Uh, were mainly a ramification of that storm event. And then lastly, the nutrients that came in with the huge bolus of fresh water that came into the system, they didn't just flush out of the system because Pamlico Sound is a, is a lagoonal system. It's essentially like a big bathtub out there that holds the water, and that water exchanges with only a few narrow inlets to the coastal ocean. But what happened with Floyd was that the bathtub got filled. In fact, it overflowed. But many of the pollutants and nutrients and sediments that came down with all that uh, water stayed in the system. The system essentially was a trap for those nutrients. And we saw algae blooms, for example, uh, six to nine months after Floyd hit the system that were still largely due to the nutrients that came in from Floyd. Now, we're actually looking at Matthew in a similar way because Matthew, like Floyd, was a very wet storm event. And there's still recharge coming, for example, from groundwater and other sources coming into the system. So Matthew, while it wasn't as big an event as Floyd, it did have this residual impact on the system that we're still monitoring. And we're also really looking at other factors that may come into play in terms of long-term water quality issues, like the organic matter that came down with all the farmland that was inundated and, and even like uh, flushing of swamps and uh, places upstream that all essentially went into this giant bathtub system. And, it, the, and the bathtub is still working its way through all these nutrients. You know, they don't just get chewed up and you get one algae bloom and it's all over. There are long-term ramifications. So the thing we're really concerned about with storms now is not only the uh, size of these storms in terms of how much water, but the frequency. Because we can see now from Floyd and Matthew and even other storms uh, that have impacted our coastal and estuarine systems that the systems require a certain amount of recovery. You know, they need to work their way through the pollutants and nutrients that come into the system and then get back to some kind of normal state that would be, you know, desirable habitat for fish species, shellfish, et cetera. And what we're seeing now with this increased frequency is the system is still recovering when it's being hit by a new system. And this is what happened with Floyd and Dennis and Irene back in 99. We had a kind of a glimpse of it. But given the fact that there are projected increases now in, in not only intensity but frequency of these storm events, and we've certainly seen that in North Carolina. I mean, there's been a big upswing since the mid-'90s. So we've seen these events and what they can do, and also the concern that we have now about this increased frequency of these major events. The other thing that hurricanes do that we're just starting to learn about a bit more uh, over the past, I don't know, five years or so, is how they affect the carbon cycling in the system. And, you know, carbon is not thought about as a nutrient like nitrogen and phosphorus, for example, in the system, but carbon plays a very important role in terms of our climate, for example. The amount of carbon dioxide that we're putting into the atmosphere has an effect, and the greenhouse effect, obviously. 
We've put equipment on the ferries now that can actually monitor the flux of carbon, the carbon dioxide that's coming into the system versus what's going out. Because Pamlico Sound is like a big bank, you know, when you think of it in terms of carbon. There's a lot of carbon stored up in there from what comes in from the watershed, what comes in from the marshes around the system, what's being produced in the system. So from a larger scale climatic perspective, uh, big systems like Pamlico Sound can influence the flux of CO2 in and out of the uh, atmosphere. And we think it might play an important role in the ocean, too, because, you know, hurricanes travel over the ocean, so they're also affecting the carbon dioxide equilibrium between the atmosphere and the ocean. If we're going to be getting these hurricanes more frequently, and that means less time for the system to flush this all out, is there anything that we can actually do to help the situation? Well, two major things. One is, given the fact that we're into a more stormy world, so to speak, you know, we need to deal with this in the watershed because that's really where the nutrients and a lot of the pollutants are coming from. So better management of our lands is an obvious step that would help. For example, applying fertilizers at times when we know we don't have these large-scale events and applying them sparingly so that we know that, you know, if you apply extra fertilizer, for example, in August and September, well, there's a good chance that a lot of that is going to wash into our waters. Better fertilizer management is certainly should be a big priority. Things like no-till agriculture to re- reduce the loss of sediments, Impervious surfaces play a huge role, stormwater runoff, for example, in cities and urban areas, and having appropriate uh, retention ponds to catch that water so that it doesn't immediately flow into our waterways. That can help a lot in terms of retaining the nutrients on land or processing them on land and not allowing them to immediately fertilize our waters, which are already over-fertilized. Constructing artificial wetlands and making sure that we protect our swamps and natural habitats where water flows through and can be processed to remove some of those nutrients are also really important steps. We've done a good job in the Noose Basin with riparian buffers. These are um, strips of land around agricultural and even urban areas that are vegetated so that the plants on the land actually take up a large amount of those nutrients as opposed to the water just flowing off the lands into the receiving waters. So those are all really good strategies that are going to play a bigger role as we are into a stormier world. Now, taking the other end of it, you know, the receiving end, the estuaries and coastal systems, we need to manage our fisheries to be, to be responsive to these events. For example, we know that fish are more susceptible to disease, for example, when we have these large-scale events. We know that they're more stressed in terms of the habitat that they have to live in, particularly shellfish. So probably protecting some of those species at times or all the time to um, be able to have them reproduce adequately under stressful conditions, for example, is really important. So there are going to be periods where, you know, we may not be able to fish our favorite fish species because they've been stressed and need to be protected. Or we may need to focus more on aquaculture, oyster restoration projects, and also restore oysters and other shellfish in areas that are not going to be as impacted as we've seen in some of our estuaries, for example, out in the coastal waters, which maintain their salinity much uh, longer. So there are lots of uh, management steps that can and should be taken in terms of protecting our natural resources out there, too. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. 
And don't forget to check back to unc.edu next week for another episode of Well Said or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Android apps.